You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. And hi, everybody. Here's what's ahead. Stocks are stuck in a vortex of fear and hope. Fear that the new flood of COVID cases is going to take down the recovery versus hope that the rebound is real and the Fed can keep the economy from cratering again. We'll look at whether the market can break out. Plus, work from home worries. The profound impact this new way of life could have on the U.S. economy. Could it lengthen the recession in the near term? And the new kid on the block, Nicola, has doubled just this month. It got its first big rating from the street, and it's a bullish one. The analyst behind that call joins us. But we begin with today's markets, and Dom Chu is here with those numbers. All right, so Kelly, that market vortex of fear and hope that you just referenced is playing out in the market right now today. And right now, there are no winners. There are no losers. It's basically a draw at this point. Marginal gains and losses. The Dow off by about 70 points off the lows-ish of the day. But it's been pretty range-bound, just one quarter of 1%. You can see here just about flat for the S&P 500, holding right around that 3,100 mark. And then marginal gains for the Nasdaq Composite as well, the real upside standout today. One place, though, that's really standing out and has been for a while here is the V-shaped recovery that we have seen in software stocks, the iShares Expanded Tech Software ETF ticker IGV up one full percent outpacing the market. And by the way, this gets a gold star because it did hit a record high in trading today. Watch that. A lot of big software names in that particular ETF. And then the stock of the day, the second worst performer in the S&P 500 supermarket chain Kroger off by six percent. Not because they did anything really wrong. They beat on the bottom line and the top line after reporting their results, but they withdrew or didn't give any guidance citing issues around the COVID pandemic. Still, though, those Kroger shares really standing out in this tape particular down 6%, Kel. I'll send things back over to you. 19% comps, Dom, and they can't, you know, that's not, that's not but good But no enough. guidance, but no guidance. No, understandable. Right. Uh, but still, Dom, thanks very much. Now, the market is swinging between gains and losses following weaker-than-expected jobless claims data this morning. Another million and a half Americans filed for unemployment benefits, and that raises some doubts about the strength of the economic recovery. Joining me now, Daryl Kronk is Chief Investment Officer for Wealth and Investment Management at Wells Fargo. Steve Auth is Chief Investment Officer for Equities at Federated Hermes, and Chris Repke is Chief Financial Economist at MUFG. It's great to have you all. Chris, I'll just begin with you and and what sense you can kind of make of what's going on with the jobless claims numbers. Yeah, it's been going on a long time. I guess we started uh, March 13th with the first signal we're going into a recession with like 280,000 claims. Now, three months later, we have one and a half million just this week, one and a half million people in the country. The worst point of the last recession, the Great Recession, so-called, over a decade ago, 665,000 in one week. That was the maximum. Now we still have, we're running two and a half times that right now. It's just, it's really unbelievable how bad, how massive these job losses are. They're on a scale that we've never seen before. I think that's why the markets are having trouble uh, forming a, a rational opinion about what this means. Daryl, I'll ask you if you put a lot of stock in what's typically been a very good indicator of the economy, or if you think that this series is too skewed is not the right word, just affected by all of the different things going on with jobless claims right now and the absolute flood of people trying to get these benefits all at once. That's yeah, a great point, Kelly. Um, there is no doubt that jobs matter and jobs are the lifeblood of the U.S. economy. So getting this high-frequency data on uh, initial jobless claims is of uh, extreme importance. Um, it was disappointing. I think there was the most disappointing point for me was the continuing claims didn't come down more, which
which is really your sustained claims that people are maybe not moving from that furloughed world into more of a uh, permanent or stagnant uh, unemployment level. So we need to watch that closely. It's interesting, though, um, the, the jobs data is a little bit juxtaposed against some of the other data we're seeing, which is you know better housing data. The NFIB survey came in much better, proxy mm-hmm. uh, for small business. Um, some of the uh, retail sales numbers, the sentiment data on University of Michigan consumer sentiments better. So a lot of the stuff are coming off and gaining some momentum as we move forward here. Uh, but, but labor and, di- and jobs matter. Yeah. And Steve, to that point, we also had a much better reading on the Philly Fed survey. So, you know, there are definitely parts of the economy telling you that we're coming vigorously off the bottom, but the labor market just remains a mess. What does that sort of suggest to you is the right thing for investors to do here? Kelly, you know, our our advice is to to stay the course here. I think the the, the unemployment claim number, typically a good number, but the week to week is bouncing around a little bit here. Uh, you know, with all the delays in, in record unemployment filings, et cetera, I think the general picture that most investors should have is that each week is a little bit better than last week. We're in a kind of hard bounce as we restart the economy, and then we're going to be chopping wood for probably six to 12 months. So, you know, we remain optimistic. We think equities a year, year and a half out will be substantially higher. Uh, that said, we have taken some uh, risk assets off the table from where we were when I was last with you, Kelly, and we were, you know, much lower. Hmm. Um, but we're still overweight stocks here. We think it's very much a stock picking game uh, has been all year, but in the back half of the year, even more so. I mean, it's been easy up to now. Buy the winners, sell the losers. Now we're looking at the survivors that can, you know, continue to get better as the economy gets better. But that's a dicier proposition. So right. I think it is a stock picking game, less of a market call right now. Absolutely. Chris, to bring you back in, uh, there were other uh, economists on the street today who said they're just going to stop watching the jobless claim series because it's that uh, kind of at odds with other readings on the economy. Would you go that far? I mean, is it is it an aberration to you or does it tell us that it's a much tougher slog out there than we expected. And if that's the, the case, you'd think the markets would be acting a lot worse to it. Um, no, I'm certainly, I think uh, this other economic data, I know some of the Fed officials have pointed to things like credit cards, uh, spending and things like that. I'm not in favor of that. Uh, unemployment claims is the most immediate figure we have about what's right and what's wrong with the economy. And the levels are so high right now that people, they just, they can't, they don't realize how bad it is out there right now. I haven't been on a plane since February 29. Uh, there's a, a, a food, a line for food they're giving away at the uh, elementary school around the block, and it goes like half a mile. We've never seen this. So right now with, with unemployment claims, there's 30 million people receiving benefits. There was just 2 million receiving benefits March 13th. People just can't, you can't imagine how bad that is. It's not just continuing claims. It's also, there's a pandemic unemployment assistance program. There's 10 million getting that. And there's 1.1 million getting a pandemic emergency unemployment claims. There's 30 million people out there 
getting benefits. It's just, it's, I've never seen this in my career. Yeah. So I'll give Daryl and Steve you a chance to respond to that. Uh, Steve, first to you. Uh, and I also can't help but mention one of the stock picks uh, of yours or the, or the company's is Planet Fitness, <laughs> which seems like just about the last place uh, anybody's flocking to right now. Yeah, an example of a survivor, Kelly, where, you know, that business has been really tough. Planet Fitness has got a great balance sheet. They're going to help consolidate this industry, which was probably overbuilt. Uh, and, and we think, you know, they're, they're one of those survivors. If you're looking for something that, you know, could move substantially higher, having missed, you know, you could be overly bearish here and, and look at the near term number. We've got a log of gig economy workers unemployed. I mean, the unemployment numbers are scary. But they're going to get better each week. Once we get to the point where Americans are less fearful about going out, there is a pile of cash that they're waiting to spend. They've all been getting a big bridge loan from the government. So, uh, you know, again, the last half of the year, I know it's going to be dicey, but 12 months from now, the economy is going to be sailing along fine. Long-term investors should be staying the course here and looking for spots to add to equities, not blowing the bugle and running for the hills. Daryl, I'll give you a quick last word. I know you're hot on information technology, which just hit another all-time high today. Yeah, I think Steve's right on this. I think it's time for investors to stay up in quality. Uh, Chris brings up good points about the labor market, but you want to be overweight domestic over international. You want to be overweight large over small. And you still want to be overweight cyclical over defensive, in our opinion, at this point. This looks more like kind of the start of the next cycle, a la 1992, 2002, 2009 here. So I think you've got to be positioned accordingly and don't get too defensive here. All right. Great variety of perspectives. Thank you all today. Chris Repke, Steve Off, and Daryl Cronk. Really appreciate it. We turn to the coronavirus cases in Nevada, which are spiking, and gaming regulators late last night changed the rules to now force players to wear masks at the casino gaming tables. Contessa Brewer is here with all the latest for us. Contessa? Hi there, Kelly. Yeah, these rules apply to any table where there are no glass or plexiglass, rather, partitions separating the dealers from the players uh, or from one another. And new rules mandate the casinos are offering masks to the guests upon their entry that they post signs throughout the properties declaring that masks are available. But the regulators stopped short of mandating masks for all visitors inside or even for slot players. And the pictures show when given the choice, the vast majority of guests are choosing not to cover their faces. Casinos have been open now for two weeks. The restaurants have been open for more than a month. Coronavirus cases are spiking. Tuesday, Clark County reported a record daily increase. And a former CDC science advisor told the Las Vegas Review-Journal, this is not a second wave. It's still a first wave. Quote, I think you've seen a ripple and there's a tsunami left. That's a disturbing warning. Fed Chairman Jay Powell in his Senate testimony this week called Nevada ground zero for why recovery could take years, why the federal government needs to plan on more aid. And you think about it, the state unemployment there is 28 percent. Its workforce largely depends on businesses that profit from people congregating. And what scientists have told us, Kelly, is that congregating and coronavirus go hand in hand. At this you know, point. Contessa, we're about to get into it, but these stocks have just been ripped off of their lows. Um, does that tell you that that they just got oversold or that the market is way more optimistic about these business models than perhaps you and I can fathom to be, given everything you've just described? 
Let's depart from the Las Vegas Strip and look at their regional casinos because, Kelly, we got a great look at how they're performing. These casinos have been able to take all these massive costs out of the business, and then when they reopen, slowly to add them in, only incrementally. And a lot of the most unprofitable parts of the business, those buffets, they can't open anyway because of coronavirus. Now you have a good excuse not to reopen them, and those profit margins show the companies are figuring out how to make money even in spite of coronavirus. That is a great point. Contessa, thanks very much. We appreciate it. Contessa Brewer, the latest in Nevada for us. And speaking of the casinos, let's take a look at the run that some of them have been on since the economy started to reopen. Caesars, which owns the Paris Las Vegas casino that's opening as we speak at 1 p.m. Eastern today, has rallied more than 277% off of its lows. MGM, which has a few hotels open on the Strip right now, is up more than 200% off its lows. And the best performer has been Penn National Gaming. That company said it saw strong demand when it reopened its casinos in Mississippi and Louisiana. The stock is up more than 760% from the lows. And I guess that's what closing the buffet will do for you. Coming up, Nikola is the new kid on the block when it comes to electric vehicles. It's nearly doubled since its IPO this month. We're going to speak with the first analyst to initiate coverage to talk about why he says this has a lot more room to run. Plus, major changes are coming to a McDonald's near you. We'll tell you what exactly they are. And are there better economic indicators out there that can be used to gauge the pandemic recovery? We'll explore ahead on The Exchange. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Investors are rewarding people out there right now that are changing the world, reducing emissions. And I think Nikola Nikola is a unique company because we were targeting the second largest polluting industry in the world, the trucking industry. And we're the first zero emission semi truck on the NASDAQ listing market. I mean, a company that's actually only focusing on zero emissions with heavy duty trucks. And that's it. And that's why you see such a good response so far. And that was Nikola founder and executive chairman Trevor Milton on Fast Money this week. That good response he's talking about is the stock nearly doubling since going public through a reverse merger two weeks ago. It surged as high as $94 a share last week before losing steam. We're over 67, up 5% today. And now it's getting its first Wall Street endorsement with Cowan giving, Nick, Cowan giving Nikola an outperform rating and a price target of 79. That's an upside of about 20% from these levels. For more, I'm joined by the analyst behind the call, Jeff Osborne. Jeff, it's good to have you. Well, Welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me, Kelly. I should point out, because this is my first question, on Tesla, this is like your only sell. You have a $300 price target, so it's not as if you're just a fanboy of EVs. No, certainly I do think uh, society needs to decarbonize uh, really across both power generation uh, as well as transportation, both personal cars and trucking. But uh, Tesla certainly had some challenges. We've got some concern on the downside uh, with demand, but uh, also they've had a a lot of uh, production issues as well. And I think the partner ecosystem at Nikola uh, in, in particular with Case New Holland, will allow them to avoid some of the, the pitfalls and hopefully they're not going to be building uh, trucks out in the tent in the backyard. <laughs> so let's talk about some of the contrasts and, and similarities between Nikola and Tesla. In what ways does Nikola remind you of Tesla and what ways doesn't it? And, you know, is, are those differences, as you began to describe them, a, a good thing in your view? Yeah, I'd say that the biggest difference is Tesla aims to do everything from making seats to the you know, battery packs to the motor uh, inverters all in-house. Uh, you certainly can have a, a leadership in technology, and uh, they have that today. Uh, I do think the Europeans are rapidly catching up as the tier one suppliers that normally supply them, uh, you know, upgrade their technology and, and catch up. But um, 
In terms of Nikola, they, they convinced, uh, Trevor, to his credit, uh, convinced uh, a partner ecosystem to co-invest along with his own personal money in creating the, the company. Uh, Bosch and Worthington were at the start of that process, but uh, over time, uh, close to a dozen partners uh, came into the fold and uh, really accelerated the path to development. And the latest round with Case New Holland really gives them, uh, in the first two years at least, uh, a location to make these trucks uh, at a factory in Ulm, Germany, that's been making trucks for uh, quite some time. Interesting. And still, this company is a ways off from producing cars in the U.S., at least, or its trucks. Again, I know a lot of this is about uh, the trucks that it's producing. Um, you're saying you're talking about them becoming uh, earnings positive on an EBITDA gap basis in 2024. Um, in talking about, you know, a model with 25,000 trucks sold in 2026. I mean, this year has certainly taught us projections into the future, especially that far out, you know, are, are, are hopeful at best. But it, at the same time, is that your best guess? If, I mean, when you have people in Robinhood who are piling into the stock and driving it up to 97 out of their excitement for the future, are you really able to come in with financial analysis to determine what a proper price target here should be? It, it certainly is difficult. To, I hear you on that. Um, you know, that being said, there's over 250,000 trucks a year sold in the U.S. alone. Uh, if you look in Europe, the, the mandates around CO2 start in 2025. So there'll, there'll be a, a, you know, a, a quick ramp up in that region. But just looking at domestically, uh, as you have uh, fleets like UPS and Anheuser-Busch and others that uh, Nestle Waters that are all putting uh, sustainability goals out there. A lot of them have been able to uh, decarbonize their buildings and factories. Uh, but the hardest part is really the heavy duty applications, whether it's trucks, uh, railroads, marine, a uh, whole host of applications. Uh, you know, uh, need a solution like what Nikola is offering uh, to enable them to get there. And so uh, the, the innovative business model, as well as the partner ecosystem, should allow them to hit the targets. I actually think they're pretty conservative, but wanted to set the bar low to start. Fascinating. Jeff, it's been great to have you. Thanks so much. Thanks much. Jeff Osborne from Cowan. Now, if you were looking for a yogurt parfait or a salad in your next McDonald's order, you're out of luck. The company is limiting dozens of menu items as it deals with the ongoing pandemic. Kate Rogers is here with that story. Kate? Hey, Kelly. Well, the fast food giant is planning to scrap dozens of items off U.S. menus for the foreseeable future. This after slimmed down operations during the COVID pandemic led to improved service times and better margins for the company. McDonald's has removed salads, bagels, and as you mentioned, yogurt parfaits among the 100 or so items to simplify operations in stores, but is also exploring ways to bring some things back like salads in the future. Earlier in the week, executives said that 25 seconds were shaved off of drive through times during the pandemic. That's really key, Kelly, because drive through accounts for about two-thirds of McDonald's U.S. business here. This isn't the first time, though, the company has simplified its menu. It removed Kraft Burger options in recent years as they proved complex to customize and make in a business that is so reliant on speed and convenience. Franchisees have also spoken out about the menu's complexity, and some are even pushing to drop all-day breakfast from the menu for good. And talks about that and what to do there uh, are still ongoing. So we'll continue to follow, Kelly. As long Back as they don't you. drop the McFlurry. If you hear anything about that, <laughs> I want to know. Will do. Uh, Kate, thanks so much. Kate Rogers with the latest there. And we've got a news alert on reopenings. New Jersey announcing that indoor portions of malls are now set to reopen on June 29th. And there will be mask requirements. All stores will be limited to half capacity and they'll prohibit food court seating. The theaters and arcades also remain closed. Coming up, buyers fled New York City and headed to places like Florida as the stay-at-home order started. Will the flight down south last as the Northeast reopens and Florida cases spike? Plus the bouncer at the most popular bar. Details of a new battle brewing between Apple and developers over its app store. And remember, you can always watch and listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The Exchange is back in a couple.
Welcome back. Let's get to Sue Herrera for our CNBC News update. Sue? Thanks so much, Kelly. Here's what's happening at this hour, everyone. New York's governor, Andrew Cuomo, says he is considering a quarantine for travelers from New York uh, from Florida to New York due to concerns that they could spread coronavirus. Cuomo also slamming the federal government for their handling of the virus, calling it, quote, an undeniable mistake, end quote. Meanwhile, virus cases continue to rise in Arizona. That state reporting 2,519 new virus cases. That is a new single-day high. U.K. Foreign Secretary Dominic Robb under fire. Robb saying in an interview with a talk radio that the roots of taking a knee, a form of protest associated with the Black Lives Matters movement, seem to him to be taken from Game of Thrones. Rob adding that he felt taking a knee was a symbol of subjugation rather than liberation. And House Speaker Nancy Pelosi ordering the removal from the U.S. Capitol of portraits of four previous House speakers who served in the Confederacy. This ahead of Juneteenth, tomorrow, the day commemorating the end of slavery in the U.S. You are up to date, Kel. I'll send it back to you. All right, Sue, thanks very much. Sue Herrera. The pandemic has accelerated an ongoing trend of people leaving cities in the Northeast for sunny, affordable Florida. Robert Frank has a look at how that's created a luxury boom in the Sunshine State. Robert? Kelly, well, sales contracts for co-ops in Manhattan plunging by 80% in May. That compares with a year ago. For condos, it was down 83%. And the high end here getting hit the hardest. Co-ops priced over $5 million in Manhattan, down over 90% in May. Now, some of those buyers, as you mentioned, are shifting their money to southern Florida, which saw a big increase in May. Contracts for single-family homes there priced over a million dollars, up over 45% in Miami-Dade County, up 26% in Palm Palm Beach County. Now, Manhattan brokers are blaming the decline on the shutdown in New York. Brokers have not been able to show apartments for since March or hold open houses. They will be able to start showings on Monday, and they're predicting a sales boom from all that pent-up demand. New condo listings down about 54 percent in May in Manhattan, but they have been creeping higher. The big unknown here is prices. Now, because we haven't had deals We don't know what the true price levels are in Manhattan. Some brokers saying it could be down 10% when we start seeing trades in June or July. But again, a big unknown of what the price levels will be in Manhattan. But in the meantime, a lot of buying in Florida. And so far, the brokers tell me these increased cases in Florida have not had an impact on demand, Kelly. Just how big is the luxury boom down there, Robert? I mean, how much are prices and sales up and is it sustainable? Well, it's market by market, but if you look at single-family home sales in Palm Beach County and Miami County, that's where the biggest boom is up there. Prices up double digits. And a lot of brokers telling me in terms of sustainability, June, which is typically the off-season in southern Florida, has been one of the busiest months ever, even compared to the peak season for many of these brokers. And a lot of it's young families putting their kids in schools. So this is long-term. Yep, I'm losing my dear neighbors to that very thing, Robert, so I don't appreciate the update. Thanks very much, Robert Frank, with the latest on this trend for us. Coming up, a look at the deep economic impact that a future of working from home could have. Plus, San Francisco is considering a new overpaid executive tax to try to mitigate COVID-related health costs. Could it be the first of many cities? And the unemployment and jobless claims numbers have many economists scratching their heads lately about the state of the economy. We'll look at some of the market's leading indicators to see what they're telling us. Stay with us.
Welcome back to The Exchange. Half past the hour. Let's get a check on markets right now. Dow's down 48 points, but the other two major averages have turned positive, the S&P and the Nasdaq. S&P fractionally, the Nasdaq's up by 20. And at the lows this morning, after the very bad unemployment uh, claims numbers, we were down about 1%. So again, we've seen this comeback. We'll see if the Dow joins uh, the others. And let's look across the sectors, kind of see what the fuller picture is here. Energy and consumer staples are the leaders today, while real estate and utilities are the laggards. Again, not by too much. Energy's up more than 1%, while real estate is lagging by about the same amount. Uh, digging into the Dow, the leaders right now are Procter & Gamble, Travelers, Microsoft, and Raytheon. So those are helping the blue chips. Uh, not enough, again, to turn positive, uh, but still P&G up 1.5%. Travelers more than 1% today as well. We have more companies saying they plan to keep workers at home even after economies reopen, and that could have a profound effect on the U.S. economy as a whole, and in particular, on state and local governments. Steve Leisman has a look at both the short and long-term impacts of keeping America at home. Steve? Kelly, thanks. Yeah, if it happens in mass, if it happens in big numbers, it could be disruptive to the, to the economy and the rebound, maybe even lengthening the recession as the economy adjusts to this change as idle as, as, as productive capacity is idled because office space and restaurants and retail and places that serve these workers all of a sudden have reduced business and maybe, who knows, no business if a lot of people stay home. Let's look at working from home by the numbers. 28% in our recent CNBC change research survey uh, of Americans who are working, or working from home due to the coronavirus. Now, of that, 44%, they want to continue working from home or are unsure about returning. So who knows? Maybe it's one in five. Maybe it's one in four. I doubt it's one in uh, two. But some large percentage could ultimately end up staying at home. 39%, meanwhile, of urban dwellers, they've thought about moving due to the coronavirus. All right, let's look at the challenges this presents to the economy. Kelly, you already alluded to some of them. You'd be idling office, retail, and residential space. That could spell debt troubles for leverage, especially the high, most highly leveraged real estate that's out there. And obviously, it would reduce government revenue from tolls, for public transit, and for property taxes. But as in all of economics, there's always an offset. You can't just take one without the other. Some of those offsets would be you could have a decline in new construction that would make existing capacity more valuable, or reductions in rent, plus you have low uh, interest rates, possible need for more space, at least on a short-term basis from social distancing. And then the big question, what about worker productivity gains? More productivity is good for the economy overall. The question is, are workers more productive? Do they put that extra time into more work? or more family time, and that is the question for the economy. And I know you have a uh, person coming up on a poll, Kelly. One thing that struck me from that poll is 47% of business respondents expect their physical office footprint to be changed permanently from the COVID-19 crisis. And that is an interesting thing to watch and see how extreme that becomes for the outlook for the economy and for these individual sectors as well. You know, Steve, just picking up on what you said about whether it's people are more productive or having more family time, I wonder long term for the economy if more family time might help us be more productive. Because otherwise, I mean, you've seen the birth rates collapsing and all of that. You know, perhaps that's just the kind of balance that would be more productive in the very, very, very long run. Sure, it could be. And I think people are ultimately what's happened here, Kelly, is a window has been opened on a new possibility that many people didn't know about. There are some people working at home for the first time, myself included. There are some possibilities here. I mean, I could be anywhere. Wink, wink to my boss right there. Um, and, and that's a possibility. I'm spending more time at home. I'm spending less time in traffic. 
spending less time in airplanes. And let me tell you something, Kelly. I don't miss a single flight that I've not taken. <laughs> Nor I, uh, Steve. I, I agree. Sorry to the airlines, but uh, uh, no, I hear you. Thank you, Mr. Leisman. We're going to pick up on this right now. Uh, Steve Leisman with the very latest. What are companies planning to do in a post-COVID world? Well, S&P Global Market Intelligence is out today with a survey of 575 companies looking to get a picture of what this new reality for workers will look like. The biggest finding is that 67 percent are planning to stick with work from home policies for now. Joining me with more on these results, Liam Eagle is head of the head of voice of the enterprise research at S&P Global Market Intelligence. Liam, welcome. Hi, thanks, Kelly. So, okay, we we say people are planning to to keep working from home, but are we talking about a few months or do you think this could be much, much, much longer lasting? Sure. So the, the, the way that we phrased the question was, well, first we asked them which policies they put in place as a result of this. Now, that started when that was a policy that you could put in place and prior to there being more of a sort of government mandate that this is happening. Uh, so right now, almost all companies have employees working from home, and we sort of describe that as an expanded uh, or universal work-from-home policy. Uh, and we basically asked them, you know, do you expect these policies to remain in place long-term or permanently? And so, you know, two-thirds of businesses expect... Uh, expanded work from home policies or universal home work from home policies to remain in place permanently. That doesn't necessarily mean everybody working from home all the time, but it means more working from home. Um. Sure. I was, uh, one of the questions I was going to ask, because it has big implications for commercial real estate, obviously, is what does this look like for demand for office space? Because obviously more people working from home would seem to lessen it. However, we have conference rooms around here that once held 30 people that can now hold a max of three. Our company is going to need right. more space. Yeah, so there's I, there's two things from the survey that, that that talked about that. One, we did ask about you know, do you plan to uh, you know reduce your office space as a consequence of this? And you know, almost half told us that yes, we do plan to reduce our office space, as Steve just mentioned. And, and then uh, you know, about twenty percent said they plan to reduce it by more than a quarter. So some people are expecting pretty big, significant cuts to their physical office space. Uh, to your point, though, uh, you know. Uh, about three quarters of the responses responses said, you know, they expect social distancing, physical distancing to be the biggest sort of operational challenge that they'll face going back to work. So, you know, to your point, that that may definitely, you know, produce circumstances where they need to find new office space. In general, what is your sense on productivity? Is it going up, going down? <laughs> I, and I heard you guys talking about family time there. I mean, <laughs> uh, so, so there was uh, about... About 40% of respondents in March told us that they were suffering productivity hits. And then about another third told us that, uh, you know, they expected to experience productivity hits. Um, three months later, the sort of expected hasn't really materialized. And the um, uh, some of the about about 15% of the organizations that said that they were experiencing it say that they, they did experience, but they are no longer. So I think the general sense there is that people are figuring it out. People are learning to be productive. Obviously, you know, you got, You've got things to work around. I have a two-year-old, so my wife and I are kind of running a daycare <laughs> and working at the same time. But we're finding ways to be productive. So, um, you know, based on our survey respondents, uh, you know, there's a hit to productivity, but it's not this massive uh, thing that they maybe were expecting. How many words does the two-year-old have? Asking for a friend. <laughs> She's got a lot. Okay. <laughs> She's got a lot. You know, well, I guess we're the only ones. Uh, Liam, it's been good to have you. I appreciate it. And just, just one last uh, question that I, mm -hmm. that on this front. Is this going to help or hurt corporate profit margins, do you think? I mean, getting people set up from yeah. home certainly has a cost. Yeah. But is it going to be cheaper in the long run? Yeah. So, I mean, that's something that kind of came out of the anecdotal 
content of this survey. So we had open-ended questions where we said, what are the challenges? And, you know, uh, we had a lot of folks telling us that, uh, you know, there's a big investment involved in getting everyone set up to work from home. Obviously, there's a there's a cost savings associated with reducing office space. You know, uh, a, a lot of people uh, in that same type of question said they weren't necessarily planning to continue uh, or they were planning to keep their sort of travel limitations that they had put in place and and actually not very you know a, a good portion were planning to you know not jump right back into business travel in the fourth quarter so uh you know they i think they're also looking at where ways ways that they're saving money right now i think this sort of you know, this period will end up being kind of a proof of concept for some new ways of working for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Ian, it's great to have you. Thank you, sir. Good luck yeah, with the little one. <laughs> Ian, uh, Liam Eagle, <laughs> right head of Voice of the Enterprise Research with S&P Global Market Intelligence. Coming up, small business lender Cabbage has made our disruptor list for the third year. It's been helping companies navigate through the PPP process and has a new partnership with Uber. We'll hear from the CEO next. Plus, a battle is brewing between Apple and one of the top app developers over the company's mandates. We'll have the details and the fallout right after this. Welcome back. CNBC revealed its Disruptor 50 list earlier this week, and fintech lender Cabbage clocked in at number 24. This week, the company announced a new partnership with Uber to help drivers get PPP loans. Our Julia Borston spoke with the CEO of Cabbage and joins me now with more on this story. Julia? Hi, Kelly. That's right. Cabbage, which is an online lender for small businesses, just this week unveiled an app to enable Uber's drivers and delivery people to apply to Paycheck Protection Program loans from the Small Business Administration right from their phones, filling out some information for them to help streamline the automated application process. What we did was actually create a really accelerated path for Uber drivers and independent contractors in general to land on the site and get access to a PPP loan. Uh, it allow the application to be pre-populated uh, and allow them to sort of speed through. Uh, these are the group of uh, applicants and, and, and folks that are uh, qualified to receive a PPP loan that really have not really been able to get it very easily. Cabbage customers have already secured 150,000 small business loans worth $4.3 billion. That makes Cabbage the fourth largest PPP lender by application volume, though Cabbage's average loan size is about one quarter the size of that of other lenders. Now, this new business is helping Cabbage compensate for the major declines it's faced in small business lending. It did furlough a significant number of its employees back at the end of March. I actually think we're going to see a huge renaissance of small business on the other side of this crisis. First of all, I think this is the sort of wake up call for the banks. Um, what they're really seeing is the fintech revolution, uh, companies that were able to serve so many small businesses. We would not have been able to do what we've done today back when we started the company in 2009. The technology wasn't there. Uh, the opportunity wasn't there. Um, what we really see the opportunity as is a new dawn for small business. Now, Cabbage tells us that about 90 percent of those applying for PPP loans through its business are new customers, which it says it hopes will help it. Um, and, and those customers will stick around for other parts of Cabbage's businesses. 
Oh, I was. Way- I thought uh, well, there was a little like, soundbite. Looks like we're missing. <laughs> yeah, looks like we're missing a soundbite there. But Kelly, um, certainly interesting challenges and opportunities for Cabbage. It is one of many fintech companies on this year's Disruptor 50 list. So you could find more um, on Cabbage and the others at cnbc.com/disruptors. Yeah, and that partnership with Uber is fascinating. Julia, thanks very much for bringing that to us. Julia Borson, all over the Disruptor 50. Coming up on Power Lunch, we're also going to speak with another member of that list, the CEO and co-founder of Heal, that company coming in at number 13 on our Disruptor 50 list this year. They set up Dr. House Calls. Look forward to speaking with Nick Desai next hour. Let's get to Apple now, which is fighting with a prominent developer over its App Store payments structure. Josh Lipton is here now with those details. Josh? Yeah, that's right, Kelly. This fight is happening just days before Apple's big developer show kicks off. The core issue here, Kelly, is Apple's rules and requirements for payment in the App Store. It's an issue that regulators in Europe are taking a look at as well. Here's what happened. Basecamp's David Hansen just launched a new email app called Hey, but now there's a problem. He says Apple is threatening to remove the app from its store unless he uses Apple's own payment system and shares a cut of the revenue. Hansen says that's just not fair because he doesn't solicit payment from inside the app. They are a part of a duopoly together with Google, where if you want to sell software, if you want to make software, you have to be on these mobile app stores. And they're saying, you know what? We're going to take a 30% cut of essentially all economic activity that happens in these platforms. And that's just preposterous. But Apple hits right back, saying that this app just doesn't meet its guidelines. More broadly, Apple is going to argue it offers a secure platform and that developers, it points out, have earned over $155 billion since the App Store first launched back in 2008. But a risk for Apple here is that this fight snowballs. And in fact, Match Group is now weighing in, too, telling CNBC, we're acutely aware, they say, of their power over us. Bottom line, why does this matter for an investors will remember the App Store is the big driver of that faster growing, higher margin services segment. Kelly, back to you. And Josh, this isn't the first time we've heard about the App Store being raised in an anti-competitive way. Uh, You have to wonder just how committed Apple is to defending these current practices. Yeah, so listen, um, like everything else, Kelly, it comes down to money and the cut. Apple takes a 30% cut. We know of those paid app and in-app purchases um, for subscription services. That drops to 15% after the first 12 months. We know, um, listen, some developers have pushed back on that. They've said um, that's too much. Apple will counter, hey, listen, we offer a big, secure platform, a powerful marketing tool. We're the reason you can reach so many people around the world, and that's worth a fee. We'll see how it shakes out, Kelly. Yeah, for sure. Josh, thanks very much with the latest there. That's Josh Lipton. Still ahead, leading economic indicators like jobless claims may be less sensitive to macro changes these days because of coronavirus. Up next, we'll take a look at some key market-based signals to watch. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Exchange. Investors are used to watching data like jobless claims as a leading gauge of the economy. But the the pandemic has changed all that. While the jobs data is messy and difficult to interpret, some are turning to market-based signals like copper and the Baltic Dry Index, which has surged nearly 200 percent in the past month. For more on what these numbers are telling us, I'm joined by John Spallanzani, portfolio manager at Miller Value Partners. John, it's good to have you back. Are these market signals trustworthy enough? 
Uh, yeah, I think all the tea leaves are trustworthy right now. You just got to be able to uh, put all the noise aside. There's there's many things going on. You're getting bombarded on your phone. You're getting bombarded on TV. And you're really getting bombarded by the market every day with the various gyrations. But you really got to stay steadfast and true to things that you've watched that have worked over 20, 30, 40 years. So uh, that's what we do, and that's what Bill Miller does. And that's why he's one of the best investors in the world. But, John, the Baltic dry is super volatile. So, you know, it can be up 200% in a month and then down big. You know, it's, so you obviously, like you always would, have to run that up against a bunch of other things. We mentioned copper. Does anything else jump out to you lately as pointing in an upward direction? Well, obviously, oil has come back quite a bit. So both the, uh, the West Texas and the uh, Brent have both rallied nicely. Uh, we've seen, actually, that China imports have actually ramped up. Uh, Robert Barbera. At Hopkins, uh, one of my favorite guys in, on, in terms of Chinese data, who kind of taught me how to look at it and how to watch things. Uh, if you look at when the Fed and, uh, and uh, Jay Powell had his 60 Minutes interview, from that May 17th level and that May 17th low, where he said that we're going to do everything in our power to get this economy going, and Congress is also going to do everything in their power to get everything going, uh, the market, as well as the Baltic, as well as uh, oil, has really had a nice rally, uh, as well as airlines and uh, various other, other other indicators. So if you if you listen if you if you short Robinhood and and you short the day traders and you short you're basically shorting every central bank in the world. You're shorting every scientist in the world, and you're shorting every piece of big data and every server farm in the world, because basically everybody is working on this problem throughout the world. And you're basically really not not really in a good spot when you're doing that. Uh, I think that Jay Powell is going to continue to keep the pedal to the metal. Uh, Congress is probably going to come out with another package until we get through the fall and the election. Jay Powell said in that interview, I I urge everybody to go back and watch that 60 minutes interview because he lays out exactly what the game plan is going to be. There's no doubts what 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 he's going to do. So for the next six months and into next spring, Things are going to be full bore, and he's going to be doing everything he can because what's happening is those that can least afford it have been hurt the most. And that really is kind of why we're seeing what we're seeing uh, throughout the globe right now. We're not just seeing uh, protests in the United States. We're seeing them in London, across the globe. So I think that really what we're going to see going forward is as both the central banks and every uh, government across across the world is going to really be adopting what they call MMT, right? modern monetary theory where they're not going to be afraid of going into deficit to get the economy going on, on a global basis. And we don't know what's ahead of us in the fall. And that's why they have to continue to pound away the message. There's just the jobless claims numbers being so bad. And it's, it's not even look, they could be distorted by all sorts of things. But we also those lines in Kentucky, people trying to get benefits. We have no idea what's going to happen after the next couple of months when a lot of the restaurants and other businesses realize we can't really keep people around at 50 percent capacity if this is going to be into next year. I mean, that that's and it maybe like you said, the response from Congress will be enough. But I don't know. It just feels like the rebound off the lows is, is easier in some ways than figuring out you know, how steep the slope is going to be now. Well, basically, we have to get confidence back and confidence slowly coming back. We saw retail sales kind of off the charts. Last time I was on, I talked about lines at Home Depot. We're seeing Apple mobility data kind of really going off the charts. I think that as we move forward, you know, claims actually, uh, the market bottoms two to, two to four weeks before claims peak. So the market is a leading indicator. It actually did exactly that. Claims peaked at 6.6 million. The market 
uh, bottomed on March 23rd. So about two weeks, two weeks after that is when claims we saw that big spike up to 6.6 million. And nobody thought they thought they were going to stay up there. Mm. Now that they're all the way down to 1.5 million, people are like, oh, my God, oh, my God. We're kind of flatlined right now in the market as well as claims. So uh, as things open up, we expect more people to go back on the payrolls, hopefully that this PPP is working. Yeah. You're also shorting you know, technology. Again, you have the cabinet CEO. So they lent out $4.8 billion dollars. That's a lot of money. That doesn't include how much Wells Fargo lent out, Bank of America, J.P. Morgan Chase. All these banks have been pumping money into the system because we can't have small business and medium-sized businesses yeah. shut down because they're never coming back. So until those, until those companies, until those businesses are saying, you know what, we're good, we're back on our feet, things are, things are yeah. getting better, which probably won't happen until – people feel more confident and we get some type of data, which actually we're starting to get. Yeah, we got all those protests and, and, and we haven't had a spike yet, thank God, and the amount of people getting sick. So I think those are really the factors to watch going forward. We appreciate it, Jay Spell. A little shorter thank next you. time. Love you, man. Ferrari. <laughs> John Spell and Tani. San Francisco is considering a tax plan that would target Bank of America, Wells Fargo, Chipotle, Visa, and CNBC's parent company Comcast, to name a few. We will have those details next. Welcome back to The Exchange. San Francisco considering a bold tax plan to help mitigate COVID-related health care budget cuts. Aditi Roy has those details. Aditi? Hi, Kelly. That's right. It has been dubbed the Overpaid Executive Act tax, and it targets companies with huge wealth gaps between its top earners and their local workforces. Here's how it would work. The proposal would tax companies that pay their highest earner at least 100 times more than their median of their local San Francisco workforce and earn more than $1.17 million in gross receipts. Those companies would pay at least a 0.1% tax on those receipts. Now, it's a progressive tax, so the higher the wealth gap, the higher the tax rate. The proposed tax is expected to bring in between 60 and $160 million. That would go towards the city's health care system, which is facing pandemic-related budget cuts. B of A, J.P. Morgan Chase, Wells Fargo, Chipotle, Salesforce, Visa, Gap, and CNBC parent company Comcast could face the tax, according to a San Francisco Chronicle analysis. One of the lawmakers behind the bill tweeted, large corporations that want to avoid paying the tax can do the right thing and pay their executives less or simply raise their employees' wages. But the SF Chamber of Commerce says that they could create a flight risk with companies leaving the city. Voters will plan, uh, vote on the bill later in November. Back to you, Kelly. Wow, Aditi, thanks very much. Aditi Roy with those details for us. And that does it for The Exchange today. I'll see you over on Power Lunch with Melissa Lee in just a moment. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.